Good morning. We, welcome this morning. We want to check our microphone uh, levels. We're just checking our microphones as you're coming in this morning. We're glad you've joined us on this brisk December morning as we anticipate the arrival of the new year. We're checking our microphone levels. You'll hear in our worship service a little bit. Reverend, is it turned on? Are you turned on? How are we doing? Ah, there it is. Arise, shine, your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory over you. Nations will come, nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. We okay? Okay.
Open your Bibles, if you have yours with you, to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, I think that's on page 953. Let me see, I wrote it down. 956. Matthew chapter 2. And would you follow, please, as we read together verses 1 through 12, a story that no doubt has been read in your hearing many times, read by you many times, but one that uh, continues to uh, bless us, mystify us to some degree, but certainly bless us as we study what God has recorded for us here of the visit of the Magi to Jerusalem and then to the baby Jesus in Bethlehem. Follow me as I read, please. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, the Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with Mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that you've given us thus far to worship you. We have spoken praises to your name, Father. We have listened to you speak in music. We pray, Father, that we would hear you now in your word. We pray, Father, that we would be sensitive to the ministry of your Holy Spirit who is present with us in a unique way when we gather together and when we worship based on the work of Jesus. We pray that we would have tender hearts, that we would be sensitive to the message of this day. Father, we believe fully that you have brought us to this place. You made it possible for us to be here. And we believe, Father, that you have uh, placed it in my heart to look at this particular Scripture, and Father, I pray that you were guiding me as I prepared for this. But Father, what we really need now is for you to work in our midst, tenderize our hearts, take the gospel, 
Give it fruit in us, Father. May it take root in us. Speak to us. Help us to be sensitive to what you're doing in our midst today by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew's account of the birth of God's Son into the world, we are introduced to a band of travelers who have fascinated and really mystified Christians for now thousands of years. They are the wise men, the magi, who show up in Jerusalem looking for God's Son who has been born into the world, worship Him in Bethlehem, and then disappear from the pages of Scripture. Though Matthew tells us very little about these men who have arrived to worship Jesus, I can tell you from being a pastor for 44 years that whole forest of trees have given their lives so that people could write speculation about these particular men. And one of the things that I find is when you read speculation about things in Scripture, uh, often those things stick with you, and a lot of those things are not really accurate or true. Think about the things that you've heard about these men. Are there really three of them? Do we know their names like the makers of the manger scenes seem to do, the creche? Were they kings? Did they really come from the Orient? Did they travel on camels? Were Mary and Joseph at the stable when the wise men came to worship Jesus? What was their belief system? How did they know that the phenomena that they saw in the sky, the star, was linked to the birth of the King of Kings, the King of the Jews? What was the nature of that star that led the wise men to Jerusalem and then to the place where Jesus and His parents were residing? The answers to these questions are either no or we just don't know. And there have been many other things that have been written about these men that is speculation or just poetic license. The Bible often speaks loudly by its silence, by what it doesn't say. If Matthew had been writing this account purely on his own, if he were not writing Holy Scripture, being carried along by the Holy Spirit of God, the ultimate author of Scripture, we might have a lot more information about these wise men, these magi. But since God is the ultimate author of Scripture, we're provided nothing extraneous that could direct us from the main message or distract us from the main message that God wants revealed to us. What is that message? The message is this, that God sent His Son into the world to be the Savior of all men and women, both Jews and Gentiles. He is the Savior for the entire world. The message is also that those who receive Him as Savior and Lord will worship Him like these Gentiles do. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, we examined it uh, some weeks ago. The angel said to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. For whom? For all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. In Luke chapter 2, verses 30 through 32, 
Uh, Pastor Har preached on this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Simeon takes the baby Jesus in his arms and looks into that face, and he praises God, saying, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. I want to look at worship this morning, and the first thing that I see here in the text is that true worship grows out of a heart desire to worship God. The followers of Christ and the children of their households should be scrupulously regular in their attendance to divine worship services. We should be in divine worship services whether we feel like going or not. Now, this might surprise you, but there are times when pastors don't want to go. I have had Pat Brown say to me, Jim, you've got to go. They're paying you to be there, and people are going to be there to listen. But there are times that I have not felt like going to worship. That hits all of us. But in Luke 4.16, we read, on the Sabbath day, Jesus went into the synagogue as was his custom. Our master, our example, habitually attended the place where God's people, his covenant people gathered, where the scriptures were read, where they were explained, and where the people collectively praised God with psalms and prayers. He regularly attended the place where the covenant people gathered. We are Christ's disciples, and a disciple, by definition, follows his or her master. They pattern their lives after the, the master that they are following. But far too many of us today attend church when church attendance doesn't interfere with other things we or our children want to do. God commands us in Hebrews 10.25 to not give up the meeting together with other believers as some are in the habit of doing. When you look at the New Testament church in places like Acts 27 and 1 Corinthians 16.2 and other places, those regular comings together with other believers for worship was taking place on the first day of the week. When you go to a worship service every week, unless providentially hindered by God, and by that we mean He brings something into your life that prevents you from going, some illness, an illness of a child, you're required to work, something that is not a result of your discretion. When you go every week to a church where the Word of God is proclaimed and the sacraments are rightly administered, there is the very likely possibility that positive spiritual work will take place in your soul and in the souls of your children. God's omnipotent Holy Spirit is present with us, as I prayed, in a unique way when we gather together as God's people for public worship. 1 Corinthians 3.16 teaches that. And the preached Word of God worked by the Spirit of God into our hearts and souls and minds brings about significant spiritual change in us. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 teaches that the Word of God by the Spirit is incredibly powerful. 
And I can tell you that many of the most significant spiritual changes that took place in my life took place when I was present in the Lord's house because I was forced to be there or because I was there for wrong motives. My call to ministry happened at a Bible conference, and the only reason I was in the service where that call really began to be crystallized was because I had a car and there were five exceedingly attractive ladies from my church that wanted to spend the day at the lake at this Bible conference, and if you went there, you had to go to chapel. But I was present when the lightning struck. When I accepted Jesus as my Savior, I was in church on a Sunday night at age 13, and do you know of any 13-year-old that wants to be in church on a Sunday night other than Pastor Kevin? He, he did. He's a man from heaven. But I didn't want to be there, but God's Spirit gripped me. The lightning struck while I was there because I had faithful parents who knew that their children, and probably especially me, couldn't afford to not be in church every time the door was open, so to speak. Regular worship service attendance is vital for our soul's health. But being in a worship service doesn't guarantee that you truly worship God. I mean, it makes sense to you. You know you can be present, physically present, sing hymns, recite creeds, give money, say prayers, listen to preaching, and not worship. I was reading this week in Isaiah. And if you read most of Isaiah, but if you read like Isaiah 1, 11 through 15, 29 through 13, you see that God's people were worshiping in the exact way that He wanted them to worship, at least outwardly. But their hearts were far from Him. And He said, I hate your worship. I hate you going through the motions and speaking to me with your lips when your heart is nowhere near me at all. The worship in which God's soul delight begins with a longing in us for God that God Himself creates. It is likely that these wise men have journeyed to Jerusalem from a very great distance when they appear in Jerusalem asking, where is this one who is born the King of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship Him. If that star appeared at about the time Jesus was born, many, many months, over a year, have probably gone by before these men reach Jerusalem. In seeking to eradicate the infant who might be a contender for His throne, King Herod in Matthew 2.16, remember, gave orders to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. He asked the Magi about when they first saw the star. Now, Herod, no doubt, would have left a real big margin for error to make sure that he killed the one who could take his throne. But no matter what, the edict of Herod suggests a long journey for these Gentile worship, worshipers to get to Jesus. Let me ask you a question. What drove these men to initiate and complete such a long and arduous quest to worship Jesus? Think about it. There were multitudes of Jewish people who had the Holy Scriptures 
who were all around the area of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. They had heard the stories of the shepherds, no doubt. They were not flocking to come see Jesus. How about the wise men from the east? Do you think they were the only astrologers, the only sages who were studying the heavens and, and who knew something about possibly, possibly knew something about the Jewish scriptures and all of that? People who have studied religion but stayed home? Why these men? The only answer we can offer to the question of why these men is that the sovereign Lord of all created a desire in their hearts to find and worship the Christ child. And the sovereign Lord gives that desire graciously and freely wherever he pleases to give it, whether it be to shepherds in Palestine or to Gentile wise men far off from the region. Jesus himself tells us in John 6:44 that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him or her. It was the sovereign Lord who by grace alone created a desire in you for Jesus when he was bringing you to the crucified, risen Christ for your salvation. And he continues to work in us like that after we receive Christ. The desire for Christ that God places in our hearts is part of that program that God has to sanctify us, that is to make us progressively more like His Son, the Lord Jesus. When we follow those desires, the Scriptures tell us in Galatians 5.17, we are being led by the Holy Spirit of God who is in us. The Spirit prompts us to do what is in our best spiritual interest, the interest of our spiritual health. Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in us to will and to act according to His good pleasure. We need to listen to God's voice within, and we need to obey Him like these magi did. If we refuse, we are told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5.19, that we can quench the Spirit's fire. What that means is when we don't respond to the Holy Spirit's promptings, He may very well stop them for a time and leave us to following the promptings of our own flesh. This is not how the Christian life is to be lived. If Christ is our Lord, our lives are to be lived in obedience to the inner direction that He provides us from His Holy Scripture as He leads us to live by the Scriptures. Now, we see here a desire to worship God finds its direction in what God has revealed about Himself, His revelation. Before the wise men arrived in Jerusalem, they seemed to know a fair amount about God and His plan of redemption. They knew that a human baby would be born king of the Jews. They knew that this one would be worthy of worship. Now, the word worship can mean just to pay homage to a greater person, and there's a sense in which, no doubt, they worshiped Herod when they were in his presence. But this is a different kind of worship. This has implications for worship to God. It indicates that, that they're worshiping God. 
They have seen a sign in the heavens where God dwells announcing the birth of this child. They inquire about him in the religious capital of Israel, and the Israels were monotheistic. They worshiped the one true God. And they are so convinced of the baby's deity that when they get to him, they bow in religious devotion in spite of the very humble surroundings of him and his parents. Now, it's highly probable that the Old Testament Scriptures had penetrated their land at least to some degree, to some degree. The, Ma the Magi seem to be aware of prophecies, maybe even like Numbers 24, 17 through 19, where it talks about the star that will arise out of Jacob and people from foreign lands coming. Absent God's revelation to these men, they would have worshipped the God or gods of their own creation, probably in their native land. That is what all men and women do, absent God's revelation of Himself as the one true and living God. We create an image of God, and we worship the God that we create, and usually it's a Santa Claus type of God. God brought these men to worship His Son who had taken human body and soul. God created in them a desire to worship Christ. He worked through His Word to direct them to the only proper object of worship. But God also led them to Jesus through His providences, through His guidance, through external happenings. God brought them to Jesus by that event that they observed in the heavens. Now, you probably came to faith, or if you haven't yet, will come to faith without experiencing a supernatural sign like this happening in the heavens that directed them to Jesus. But God typically, as part of the process of doing His great saving work in us, moves us to repentance and faith by His providences. He brings things into our lives that move us to Christ and Christ's sacrifice. I have heard literally hundreds of testimonies of how people came to faith in Jesus because everybody that joins the PCA churches I've been in, the two, had to give testimony to how they came to faith. And often it's through loss of a job, a broken relationship, a crisis in health, a dead end of some kind, through a persistent evangelist that some that God just moves into the, the life of, of the person who has come to faith, or some other external event that God moves us from satisfaction with our gods, the gods we have created, to the true God and to the worship of Him. We see also that the desire to worship God is satisfied through faith and obedience. Hebrews 11.6 teaches, without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. The wise men believed that this God was speaking to them, directing them, and they acted on that belief, on that faith. They followed the star they believed would provide them opportunity to worship the King of the Jews. They believe the King who is to be worshipped by Jews and Gentiles had been born, and they acted on that. They set out to find Him and to worship Him. 
The Bible teaches very clearly that we, that you, can worship the infinite, sovereign Creator God. That you can meet Him in prayer, in adoration, in praise. It teaches that you could fellowship with Him in a way that's similar to the way you fellowship with other human beings. It teaches that God seeks out people like that to worship Him, and that He finds delight in those interactions with humans. John 4.23, Jesus teaches, a time is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Listen to this. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Think about what Jesus is saying there. He's saying God takes pleasure in proper worship, and He seeks it out from people like you, people like me. 1 Peter 2.5, St. Peter tells Christians like us, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our worship goes to God and is accepted by Him when it's proper worship. Colossians 3.16, St. Paul tells members of the church at Colossae that proper worship is heard and accepted by God. He says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. You see, there's a horizontal component to worship when we come together. We encourage each other. We build each other up in the faith. But he's also saying there that all of our worship is also vertical. It is to God. Hebrews 3, 15 through 16 affirms the reality of this amazing transaction that can take place between finite men and women and the infinite God. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, and do not forget to do good and to share with others which su with such sacrifices God is pleased. Now, think about this again. Our corporate worship, your private worship that you do at home, these are accepted by God, and they bring Him pleasure, provided our worship is sincere and heartfelt and God-prescribed worship. Now, I don't know if that gets your juices flowing, but I think if you think about that enough, that is one of the most astounding realities in the entire universe. Think about who God is, who you are, and what I've just said, and that's pretty astounding. Do you believe the Scriptures that God teaches us about worship? Do you believe that you can speak to the divine persons of the Trinity, that you can sing to them, that you can meet with them in spiritual fellowship, that you can feed on them in your heart and bring delight to them by your presence in worship? If you do, the reality of these truths should drive you, should drive me, to be men and women like these wise men. These truths should drive us to make worship of Christ the Lord our priority, our passion. Only the greatest of impediments should keep us from public and private worship. 
I believe a real test of Christ's importance to us is, and of His worth is what it keeps us from com- what keeps us from coming to a worship service. So you could put meeting with Christ on one side of the balance, and whatever else it is on the other side of the balance. And if that wears out, that uh, weighs out, that tells you something about how you value Christ and meeting with Him. The wise men believed that Christ would be found by those who sought Him out to worship, and they overcame the greatest of obstacles to get to Him. Lastly, the worship of the wise men, the actual worship of the wise men, is a pattern, I believe, for all worshipers. Now, the likely implication of verse 9 is that the star that guided these sages um, didn't appear to them for a while when they got to Jerusalem, and that would explain why they're asking around as to the exact location um, of, the, uh, of the baby at this point. But after these would-be worshipers receive word from the priests through Herod of the Old Testament prophecies that established Bethlehem as the birthplace of Messiah, the Scriptures say in verse 9 that they start on the way, and it says that the star reappeared to them. Matthew tells us in verse 10 that this reappearance of the star made them deliriously happy. And that's what the words they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy mean. The star's reappearance, you see, assured them that they would be able to find and worship the king. Now, we are able to come to private and corporate worship, I think, with similar anticipation and joy in our hearts. But at least for me, it takes preparation, it takes work to get in that frame of mind. The wise men, think about it, have been thinking about worshiping the heaven-announced king for a long, long time. And their hunger for worship of him was growing as they traveled and contemplated meeting with him in the way your desire for food increases when maybe you're sitting around at home and the turkey, the Christmas turkey is in the oven and you smell it for a couple hours before you have opportunity to eat. You think about consuming it. They were thinking about worshiping and their anticipation grew. We need to think about who it is we are going to meet long before we enter the doors of church. We need to think about the reality of being in the presence in a special way of God, of beating with the one who loved us and gave his body to death and his soul to hell for our salvation. And by preparing to worship with reflection and meditation and prayer, even before we get in the car, we feed upon the appetizer that increases our God-created desire to worship Him. Preparation fosters anticipation, and anticipation fosters worship joy and satisfaction. If you walk in here and your expectation is that Kevin and Tom, as great as they are as preachers, are going on their own without any preparation to really excite you and have you worship with great joy, I think as good as they are, you're probably not going to experience what these wise men experienced. We should be preparing for worship. And by the way, boy, I don't do this all the time. This has really struck me. The star guides the wise men to a house in Bethlehem. 
Verse 11 informs us that going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. The place is not worshiped. Mary is not worshiped. The eternal second person of the Trinity, who is God in flesh now, is alone worshiped and adored in heart and body by these men. The learned sages of power, position, wealth recognize the glory and majesty of this baby, and they submit to his lordship over them. The lesser always bows to the greater. These men bow to this infant. Now, this is what we do in offering worship that pleases God. We come into the presence of God and see him by faith in our hearts. We contemplate who God is and who we are. We praise Him for who He is. If He had done nothing at all for us, He would be worthy of worship. We praise Him for all of His glorious attributes and also for the blessings, the gracious blessings that He has loaded upon us in Christ Jesus. We bow our will to His will, and we commit ourselves anew to submit to His Lordship and to obey Him. That is a summary of worship. The Holy Spirit finds it vital to include something else, however. Verse 11, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. One reason this act of their giving is included is because it fulfills prophecies like we read in, in Isaiah 60, Psalm 72, 8 through 11. There are a lot of prophecies that prophesy about Gentiles coming to worship Messiah. But another reason these 13 words are essential to the narrative is the Lord is communicating to men and women of all generations that sacrificial giving of a portion of the wealth that God has allowed us to accumulate and earn is a key component of worship. As part of their worship, the wise men give to the Lord the most precious metal of the day, along with very expensive incense and perfume. They give Jesus, if you'll pardon me, gifts fitting for a king. The gifts are so valuable that they bring them in treasures. Those are strong boxes. By their monetary value of their offerings, the sacrifice that's involved even for these men of wealth, the Magi express their true feelings of Jesus' intrinsic worth and of his value to them personally. Listen to this. There is no worship without sacrificial giving. If your offerings to the Lord don't represent some level of sacrifice to you, if giving them has little or no impact on how you live, you really aren't worshiping. Biblical worship always, always involves sacrifice. Think of the Old Testament offerings. Old Testament believers were required to bring animals, oil, and grain as offerings in their worship to God. The cost to these herdsmen and farmers was most significant. These items were their, were their money, their store of wealth. Throughout the Old Testament, the requirement was always that a believer bring a 10% tithe, which is really what a tithe is, I'm being redundant, 
of the increase of their animals and of their fields and of their other business pursuits. Additional offerings were required by God at times from these people, offerings that exceeded the tithe. And nearly all of the offerings had to be absolutely perfect. You couldn't bring junk for Jesus. It just didn't work that way. Leviticus 1.10. If God was to be viewed as of ultimate value to the worshiper, if the worshiper was to live up to the claim he was making by being a citizen of the commonwealth of Israel, if he was to be a citizen of the covenant, and if he was to live up to the terms of the covenant that he was to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, and strength, Deuteronomy 6.5, the offering needed to represent genuine sacrifice on the part of the worshiper. The worshiper had to put his money where his mouth was. And when the worshiper gave at the biblical level, but gave without the intention of buying God's favor, when that person, that worshiper, gave out of gratitude for God's love and grace to them, their offering was a delight to the Lord. Now, most of us, probably none of us here, keep our wealth in sheep and goats and grain and oil. We trade our lives for wages and salaries and pensions and annuities and social security payments, professional fees, other forms of income. And when we worship, we lay a sacrificial portion of these things which represent our lives at Jesus' feet as an act of worship. Paul tells the Christians at Philippi who have supported him financially in his missionary activity these things in Philippians 4.18. The gifts you sent are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. Is God pleased with the way you give now to Him through Faith Church and other faith-based organizations that lift up Christ in the world? If you contemplate, if I contemplate who God is and what He has given us in Christ Jesus, if we bow to His Lordship over us, sacrificial giving will be as natural to us as it was to these wise men. And biblical giving at the standard of 10%, as Randy Alcorn says, will be the training wheels to giving. They'll get us going in the right direction, and we'll be able to give as God blesses us uh, beyond that 10%. We, would, we will want to do and be able to do more generous giving. This is New Year's Eve. Now, I went back and looked. I have committed myself over the years to losing 660 pounds in New Year's resolutions. People are making resolutions all over the place this day. One of the most beneficial that those of us who have received Christ could make would be to vow as I pray for us that the Lord will help us, filling us with His grace, His grace working in us, to worship Him in 2018 more earnestly and more completely than we did last year. That we're going to follow the pattern that he revealed for worship to these sages 2,000 years ago, these men from the East. Will you do that with me as I pray? But if you have not yet received the Christ child, who is also the Christ of the cross 
an empty tomb. If you have not received him as Savior and Lord, you really can't worship the God about whom we're talking because our worship is always in Christ. We are sinners and we cannot come to a holy God unless we come covered in the blood of Jesus. Would you begin the new year by receiving Christ into your heart, saying, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that Christ came into the world to take away my sins, that he died for my sins, and that if I receive him into my heart as Savior and Lord and commit to following him, that my sins are gone and I am his child. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you, and I pray for me, Father, and my family. I pray that that we would worship you in the way that we know we should, that it would be something that is just routine, the worship routine really is a wonderful thing. But I pray, Father, that every time we come in public worship, our heart would be in it, that when we read Scripture at home and pray, it wouldn't be just because we know that that's something we should do. I pray, Father, that we would more and more long to spend time with you. And I pray that for the people who are assembled here. I pray that you would be with us as we come to the end of the year and think about our income tax and what we owe the government. Father, I pray that you would help us to think about what you require of us and what we should want to graciously give back to you. Father, I know it's hard, but I know it can be done. Pat, I did this at every level of income, from struggling seminary students eating spaghetti four nights a week to to uh, people that have raised kids and, and have an easier time giving. But Father, I know it can be done if we just build you into our budget. Help us, help these people, Father, to do that. And Father, if there's some here, and we would pray that there always are, who don't know Jesus, we pray, Father, that they would reach out to him now by faith, that they would pray to him, maybe use one of the prayers that are included in the bulletin, but that's not necessary for sure. But they would just say, Lord, I know I've sinned, and I can't save myself. I need Jesus. We pray that that would take place, and that, Father, we as your people would enjoy you uh, in the new year like we never had before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
changing grace. and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.